you're a guest here, you're arriving in a series in the letter of 1 Corinthians. We did the first six chapters last year at this time. We're now doing chapters 7 to 10. Uh, and we're just, we find ourselves this morning in the seventh chapter, which is a fairly kind of punchy chapter, okay? It's a, it's a chapter uh, that addresses marriage and divorce, uh, which is a subject in the church of our time that receives a lot of interest. And um, many of us, I'm going to just say this on the outset, there's hardly a person in this room who marriage and divorce has not affected in some way, right? So um, it's sort of with that carefulness that we're going to come to the scripture. But I want to start with uh, a thought on how do we want, how do we want to hear this truth? Usually, I think people want to hear the truth. Just tell me the truth. You know, if if I'm going to take a test, I want the teacher just to tell me the answer so I can, you know, that's a very easy one. I just want the truth. I want to know what is so I can pass the test. If I uh, am waiting for a diagnosis, I want the truth. Just tell me. Don't don't tell me less than what I need to hear. Tell me what the problem is. But there's, we don't always want the truth like that. Sometimes we, um, the truth is a little bit uncomfortable or we don't want to, well, I'll give you a, this is a, a somewhat lighthearted example to the principle. My wife and I, several years ago, were, were in the town of Ephesus in Turkey. And we were coming back from our tour in Ephesus, going to the bus, and I had to use the bathroom, which is often the case. So my wife went on with the group towards the tour bus, and I zipped over to the bathroom. Uh, and so when I came out, I was by myself, and I'm walking back to the tour bus, and I meet this gentleman who has for sale an ancient coin dug up in the town of Ephesus for only 50 bucks. So I don't know what happened to me. I was taken. I was just taken by the notion. And it was, I will say Ephesus was an extremely spiritual experience for me. So I had this need to walk away with something. Okay, so that, I, like, I won't apologize. There was, that was a real thing. But, but this guy had an ancient coin from Ephesus. Can you believe that? I couldn't believe it. He's right by the tour bus with an ancient coin from Ephesus. So I'm not going to pay 50 bucks for the thing. So... I worked it out with my skills, and I got an ancient coin from Ephesus for like 20 bucks. And I climb on the bus, high as a kite, I plop down next to my wife, and I show her my ancient Ephesian relic, and she looks at me like I'm the dumbest human on the face of the planet. I just remember like in a moment, it all came crashing down on me like, what? And she actually said to me, didn't you hear the tour guide say, like, all those people in the parking lot are just pandering like fake pieces of tin. Don't buy it. I was in the bathroom. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, right? I should have known. That's an occasion when I don't want to know the truth. I don't want to know the truth. Like, I'm not going to sell this coin. I didn't have any big entrepreneurial plans to market this ancient relic, right? I'm not even going to, like, Instabook this coin with my selfies and all of that. It was just me and the coin. 
It was, it was us. We were going to be together for the rest of my life. And I, I'm, why tell me that? You know, sometimes you just want to live in the, in the lie. We don't always... We don't always want the whole truth. Or, you ever hear that phrase, it's better to ask for permission than, or forgiveness than permission? You know, when you have that sense, that gut check, that what I'm about to do may not be the rightest way of doing it, but my sense of high standing is high enough that I think I can say I'm sorry and make it through. Like, I'm not going to go to jail for this. They'll understand. Well, you know, teachings on divorce is going to land in a room where some people just want the whole truth. Just give it to me. Give it to me straight. Some people, you know, yeah, that's fine. Others, may, there may be someone here who I would rather you just not say it. And others still who go, I was dreading this was the case, but I would have preferred if I could just ask for forgiveness instead of permission. So, I have a I have a heart uh, a non judgmental heart on this. It's my role to teach the word, so we're just going to walk through the word. I think you would even say if you in your own context are sort of squirming because of the subject, or you feel like ah, oh, like I'm not thinking of you. And I think I I trust in enough of us to say that we want we want the truth of God spoken in this room for our good and the good of others. So, you know, let's walk into this together without a judgmental heart and have our minds redeemed collectively towards the subject. All right. 2 1 Corinthians 7. The people in the church of Corinth, I think are, Corinth was a town much like you might think of New York today, morally, intellectually. It was, uh, they loved ideas, um, very, very diverse very immoral. And the church in Corinth is sort of growing up in that setting. And so at one level, you might think, well, they're ancient people. Divorce was uncommon. That's not true at all, actually. This period of time, divorce was very common, both for Jew and Gentile. So among the Jews, typically men could get divorced for any reason that they wanted. Uh, it was, a, was the running rule and among the Greeks, men and women could get divorced uh, based upon desire. I want to get divorced, you can get divorced. So it's present here. We are very much like them, except that um, they have in this church, and we, we introduced this last Sunday, there's a spiritual kind of cultic, energy in this church right now, which looks, is choosing to sort of regard things of the flesh as bad. That might be an easiest way to sort of corner it is voices in the church saying sexuality between men and women is something to be rejected. If you really want to be holy, you would head towards celibacy. That, that thinking is is sort of filtering into the church. And there's people who are trying to be like the Lord and they're hearing, well, to be like the Lord is to walk away from all of that physical intimacy that used to exist, both in your marriage in a righteous way and outside of your marriage in an unrighteous way. 
And a lot of this sort of wrong teaching falls right alongside of the right teaching of the church, right? God certainly does have a lot to say about how we use our bodies and where intimacy can live. And so the sort of the right teaching of the word is meeting, meeting this extra sort of teaching of, well, you know, the holier you get, you'll understand when you're really holy, when you, when you can walk away from your spouse, when you don't need him or her anymore. Then you'll know you've arrived. This is in the church, and they write Paul about it. They write the man who planted this church about these questions. And this seventh chapter, he's responding to their query. And last Sunday, we went through the first seven verses, which was dealing with sex inside of marriage. Paul said, the husband was made for the wife, and the wife was made for the husband. There is that mutuality all throughout the teaching. The husband's body is not his own. It belongs to the wife. The wife's body is not her own. It belongs to the husband. Make yourselves available for one another. This is good. He's challenging this teaching. saying, no, God established this. Well, this morning, he's going to continue. He's going to start to look at other conditions that people find themselves in and try to respond to this question the same way. So let's look at 8 and 9, verses 8 and 9 of the 7th chapter. And let's see what he has to say. Verse 8, he says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is this phrase, to the unmarried, that's what it says in my translation, to the unmarried and to the widows. There's fairly good scholarship here that suspects that that is actually, Paul is trying to talk to the widower. In other words, to the widower and the widow. In the Greek, there's no word for widower. So he the word's not available at this time in the Greek. But in light of the fact that all through this chapter, it's to the man and to the woman, and to the woman and to the man, it's always weaving. It's this tight weave of mutuality. Here's the teaching for the man, here's the teaching for the woman. This might be what Paul would say if he was trying to talk to the widower, and it would match that idea. So you might think of it this way. To the man and to the woman who are on the other side of marriage, but are no longer married because of some death, he would say, it's great if you can remain single. And he, he has plenty of reasons for why, that in the next week we're going to talk about why one might want to remain single. If you can remain single, great. But if in your efforts to remain single, you're going to burn in passion and lust, well then don't remain single. Marriage is not bad. You would not want, to, don't think of marriage as so bad that it's better to stay single and burn with lust than to get married. If you still have that desire and it's still playing a large role in your life and your personhood, get married. That's what he says. Nothing wrong with that. But I want you to hear the basic principle. If you find yourself single on the other side of marriage, you're fine as you are. You're fine just as you are. If you say, well, I'm not fine, then fine. Get married. And then you'll be fine. Fine. That's what he's saying. Okay? Now we'll follow it. Let's just go to 10, uh, verses 10 and 11. He's, so he's spoken to the widows. He's now turning to talk to 
married couples, both of whom are in the Lord. So to the married, I mean, you might imagine here, he has the ear of the husband and the ear of the wife. They're both sitting in the church, okay? Here's what he says. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, it's said pretty simply. I find the, the sort of emotional investment we have around the subject of divorce today looks at something that's said fairly simply and finds it inadequate. But we need to remember the scenario in which Paul is writing. He's writing to people who are contemplating leaving marriage as a way of being holier. Okay? Very different scenario than the scenarios of divorce in the energy around divorce that we find today. Very often in today's culture, divorce is a way of getting remarried. This is not, this is not at all. He's addressing almost the exact opposite which is someone who would think, you know what? Maybe I would be holier if I didn't have a wife or a husband. To which Paul's saying, don't do that. You're fine as you are. Stay in your marriage. Remain there. And oh, by the way, if you leave, you need to remain unmarried. The way that the, the structure, the Greek structure here, do you see how he gives a teaching, a high teaching? And then in my ESV Bible, it actually puts it in parentheses, verse 11. But if she does separate, she should remain unmarried. The way the Greek does this, the, the structure of the argument is it gives the high ideal teaching. And then it follows it with a, like a lower concessionary teaching. That's how the structure is. So the ideal, stay in your marriage. But sort of what is a, a close, righteous second? Well, if I were to leave my marriage, then he would say, stay unmarried. So I want to grab a couple clauses. I want to give a little caution. Verse 9, this, this idea of if, if I can't exercise self-control, it's better for me to marry than to burn in lust. I only want to point at this is to say this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card that Paul's giving us to say, well, I want to be holy, so I'm going to separate from my spouse. And now I find myself outside of marriage. Now I'm burning with lust, so now I'm going to remarry someone I actually like. That's not here. Okay, so while there may not be enough teaching here to sort of answer all of our questions, what I want us to, what is here, I want us to hear clear, which is the institution of marriage is good. And we ought not to seek undue reasons to exit it. In fact, in verse 10, he says, not I, but the Lord. I think what Paul's doing here is saying, listen, you're asking these questions, but Jesus Christ himself has actually already weighed in on this. I don't even have to say anything. I merely have to recall what the Lord himself has said, because Jesus did talk about this. I'm going to show you the end of a conversation that Jesus has in Matthew. This is Matthew 19. Leading up to this, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, is it lawful for a man to be divorced for any cause? Okay, that any cause there is a category. It's a legal category, in fact. 
we found ancient documents with any cause divorce on it. Which is, what's the reason for a divorce? We might say no fault this day and age. Okay? It would say a Jewish man could for any cause get a divorce. They wake up, they don't like their situation, they're tired, they're moving on, they could get divorced. And the Pharisees are coming to ask Jesus, is that really how it's supposed to be? This reaches way back into the Torah, okay? So there's arguments in Exodus and Deuteronomy that some of these ideas are built on. So they're coming and they're going to the rabbi, so as they think Jesus, to say, can you give commentary? Can we really get divorced for any cause? To which Jesus says, he builds from Genesis 2, don't you realize that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? And he adds to this what God has joined together, let no man separate. Right here is where he does it. And they say, well, if God God doesn't want us to get divorced, then why did the law of Moses allow us to get divorced? And he says this, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So here are the principle that you see, and really I want to study 1 Corinthians 7, but I understand the issues in front of us. I think what you see here is, is God has made marriage for a man and for a woman for life. And with the exception of the act of adultery, to leave marriage and pursue marriage again is an act of adultery. In other words, unless adultery were to break, break the covenant of marriage preemptively, okay? in other words, release the innocent party from this broken marriage, unless that were to happen, to break the covenant unlawfully and pursue marriage would be an act of adultery. When, and when Jesus says this to the Pharisees, he's saying this to people who tithe from their spice cabinets, okay, who hold righteousness, who are careful about what they wear and where they walk and who they talk to. So for him to say, what you're taking as a commonplace right is in fact a violation of the seventh commandment is to blow them out of the water. And I think this is the teaching that Paul's grabbing. He says, not I, but the Lord. Don't leave your spouse. I know we would probably like more to have been said, but we need to remember he's actually addressing nearly the opposite scenario that we find in our own culture. Okay, let's, uh, let's not miss the big idea here. Sort of marriage is for life and you do not need to change your status to please the Lord, okay? In the context of why he's writing, stay as you are is an important teaching. To be married is not to be farther away from God than to be single. Okay, let's look at verses uh, 12 to 16. Now he's responding to those others who are married, but that their spouse is not a believer. Okay? And we'll sort of walk down this together. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. 
If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Okay, I want to just make sure this is clear. He's not saying go, he, later he will say, do not knowingly marry somebody who's not a believer, okay? This is not the scenario he's dealing with right now. The scenario he's dealing with right now is, is a married couple who do not know the Lord. And then through circumstances, one of them comes to know the Lord so that they find themselves in the midst of marriage different. Okay, they were married and not Christian. And then one of them found Christ or Christ found one of them. However you want to think about it. One of them's a Christian and one of them's not a Christian. But that's not how it started, okay? So he's addressing couples that now, because this, right, the Christian movement's in Corinth and it's people are being saved out of it. So now they're finding I've come to Christ, but my husband or my wife is not in Christ. What do I do? They're pagans. You should see their behavior. I go home and there's, a, there's candles lit in front of an idol. I, they, we eat food sacrificed to idols all the time at our dinner table. We, you could just imagine all of the things. When I get sick, my spouse goes up and meets the witch doctor and gets the potion and comes back and puts it in my next meal. I mean, the pagan teachings of Corinth permeate my house. What am I supposed to do? Paul says, stay. If they'll have you, stay. If they'll put up with you, stay. This is to a crowd who's drawn to defining their holiness by their status. And he's saying, stay in that. To which you might think, well, someone might say, well then, like, what about all that paganism around my life? What about all that sin in the home? And this is what he says in 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. In other words, there's a general sentiment, right? A little yeast makes the whole lump of dough. It infects the whole lump of dough. A little bit of sin contaminates the whole thing. That's classic Jewish thinking. And even probably pagan thinking was, if you have something that's set apart and made sacred, well, a little bit of dirt in it makes it no longer, desecrates it, okay? To be truly clean, you don't need a lot of dirt to make it unclean. You need a little dirt to make it unclean. In other words, it's, it's hard to preserve the sacred thing. If we were quarantined in here from a disease and we found out that one person in this room had that infectious disease, now it would be right to assume that everyone here is not suitable. You see? That's the thinking. That's the thinking in their minds. But actually, Paul comes to them with a counter logic. He says, actually, in Christ, it works the opposite way. It's not that your unbelieving spouse is desecrating your sacred life. It's that your faith is going to serve as a blessing to them. It's not as though you need to be worried about the child that's going to come out of the womb and that the child will be a child of a pagan faith and God will look down on that child as though it belongs to the... No, no, don't worry about that. In fact, it's the opposite. The grace of Jesus Christ is super abundant. You don't need to worry. 
you're okay. Now, it's not saying that that child is going to be a Christian or that your unbelieving spouse is going to be a Christian. In fact, let's jump to 16. He sort of begs the question at the end. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, don't leave. If they'll have you, don't leave. Who knows what might happen? And in the spiritual battle of good and evil, Christ gives us the strength to sanctify this whole marriage potentially. Have hope. Now verse 15 sort of catches the middle part though. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, if you come to Christ and your spouse says, I ain't putting up with that Jesus stuff anymore and leaves, he's saying to the person, you don't have to run after them and say, you can't divorce me because Jesus said you can't. Okay? Be at peace. Like, we're supposed to be peaceful. Can you imagine just for a second, in this, in this very sacrosanct sort of thinking coming on, can you imagine how destabilizing this would be if in all of these marriages that start off as mixed marriages, they were operating under the, under the teaching that you should leave your pagan spouse. Can you, can you just imagine what Corinth would think about the Christian community? This is, I think, connected to what he says here. God has called you to peace. Not to be this massive disruptive force. Stay in your marriage. Be, be as you are in your marriage and see what God might do. Okay. In this chapter, that is essentially what Paul says about, about divorce. And it is, in the, in the church of Corinth, it is the presenting issue, okay? They have this be in their bonnet about what does holiness look like and this supposition that the more celibate I appear, the holier I therefore am. And Paul is coming, through, coming to and correcting that appropriately. Okay? But the presenting issue is not the same as the actual issue. Paul is about to address what I think is the real issue, okay? And it's just like as a parent. You know, a child can come to you and say something, and what they might say is the presenting issue. But a parent can kind of see, I know, really, I know what's really going on. I really know what really needs to be spoken to. Okay? What we're going to see now is Paul going a little deeper. If, if you think this chapter is just about divorce and remarriage, it's going to feel weird. It's going to be like he's shifting, he's changing the subject. Okay? I actually think the, the way to think about it is he's going a little bit deeper and he's grabbing on to the, the motivating principle at work. Okay? So let's read 17 through 20 together here. He's going to give two examples, okay, to kind of demonstrate the first point, the same point. He's going to say this, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at that time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at that time of his call uncircumcised? 
Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. What's the big idea there? Remain as you are. And who, how you are when God called you doesn't put you any closer or farther from God than someone else. The uncircumcised is just as close to God when they're called as the circumcised. And the circumcised is just as far from God when they were called as the uncircumcised. Where you are, whatever status you find yourself in, when you come to know the Lord, is irrelevant to God. In fact, verse 17 almost inclines us to see it as our assignment or our calling. Look at 17 again. Only let the per- each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So when the Lord finds you and calls you, like, it's not that he's... It's not that, well, now that I know the Lord, I need to leave what I'm doing or who I am or all of that. God wants you to grow in Him. God wants you to pursue Him, but it's, it's a separate issue entirely from what you actually, what role you occupy. You know, I used the childhood, and the child in me used to think back in the day that good Christians were missionaries. What do we, when, you know, if I mature enough in the Lord, I would be a missionary. Paul would say, no, that is not correct. How were you called? Serve him in the way that you were called. He's going to follow it up again with a second teaching here. Look at 20, 21 and 22. Were you a bondservant? When called, that's like a slave. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You might have someone who's a slave feeling like when he's called to the Lord that he's somehow farther from the kingdom because you have all of this language in the Bible about how we've been freed in Jesus Christ and we're free and he's now our Lord and master, but oh no, not me, I'm a, I'm a slave. I'm subject to another master. He says, forget that, forget that. You should not be concerned about who you are in the Lord. In Christ, you need to remember every day you wake up, you're a freed man in Christ. And then he turns to the freed man and says, and you need to remember when you wake up, you're a slave to Christ. Who we are, our status, our role, our job, our labeled personhood, just whatever, all those little things you'd pull down on Facebook to define yourself, they are irrelevant in Christ. It's who are you in the midst of those things that matters. How are you growing to the Lord in the midst of those things that matters? The last two verses, 23 and 24, I kept them together because I think 23, even though he's still talking about bondservant, I actually think he's aiming this back at the church. Kind of like 
why, after receiving freedom in Jesus, would you fall back on the teaching of men? I think that's what's behind this. Look at 23, reminding them, you were bought with a price. Do not become the bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each has was called, there let him remain in God. I don't want to diminish the subject of divorce that was talked about earlier. It was the presenting issue, and, and it's there. It's there for the church. But I also, I don't want us to act as though that's the, actually the deeper teaching. It's not. That was the occasion in this church that surfaced that is making Paul address the deeper issue, which is the thinking that things external to my soul like, might advance, advance my position before the Lord. And he's saying, no. Not at all. I want you to think, I'm going to read verse 17 to us. I just want us to, each one of us to sort of sit in it, in the midst of it, in a general way, just allow it to sit on you. Um, in the way that you think of what God thinks about you, how God would use you, Okay, I just want to say, say the verse again. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And I just, I want to call into question thoughts you might have had, like if I would, well, if I didn't do this for a living, I would have been able to serve the Lord better. Or... Um, well, you know, the reason, I, the reason I don't have time for God is because that. Or a thought of, um, you know, I have, a, I have a meek position in the world. What I, what I do is unimportant to most people, so it must be unimportant to the Lord. Or... Um, good Christians don't typically do this job. I went through the New Testament in my in my mind. I didn't like reread the, the Gospels, but I went through the stories of the Gospels in my, my mind. And I wanted to think, what are the times where the Lord meets somebody or the disciples, where the Gospel meets somebody and calls them into the promises of God where they leave... Um, they're told or commanded to stop what they're doing. So I know on occasion, God meets you with a calling, like the disciples. Drop your nets and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I mean, that was pretty radical, right? The call, they were pretty unique. And I also know that there are a few jobs that I can imagine that are by their own nature sinful, like prostitution. So when Jesus uh, protects um, the, the, the adulterous woman from being stoned in John, he says, go and sin no more. Right? I understand that. There's just no righteous way to continue in that occupation. But in all the other occupations, I was trying to think, how often when they meet the Lord are they told, stop doing that? Change your status, change your station. I can't hardly think of one. And some pretty aggressive examples to the contrary. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. 
A tax collector is the most reviled category. When the Pharisees have a problem with Jesus, they say he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. And when Zacchaeus comes to the Lord, is the response to Zacchaeus, you need to stop being a tax collector. You need to, you need to pick up farming or sewing or carpentry. Is that, what, is that what the Lord says? No, in fact, what ends up happening is Zacchaeus, in the station in which he received the calling from God, adopts a godly attitude. He says, I'm sorry for anything that I've done, and if I've swindled anybody of anything, I'll pay back more than what I took. To which Jesus says, today, today righteousness has come to this man. This man surely is a son of Abraham. Right? Certainly he's now in the promise. In other words, in his reviled role, he can be distinctly Christian. I think John the Baptist, two, several Roman soldiers come to John the Baptist and they ask the him, what are they supposed to do? Now, can you think of a more ideal scenario for, particularly if you just want to say if the faith was pacifistic, but certainly for John the Baptist to turn to these Romans who had conquered his homeland and who make an occupation of projecting power. Can you imagine what he's about to say? Oh, he's going to say, you need to beat your swords into plows. Right? Isn't that what he says? No. He says, do not abuse your power. In other words, be a noble soldier. You don't get closer to the Lord by, you know, looking at someone else's, oh, if I were that, I'd be closer. Mm. Where you are, it's probably best to assume that where you are and where God found you is where he wants you to grow. And on occasion, he gives a new calling. But you can be as close to the Lord as ever where you are and how he found you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this not only for those in Christ, but for those who may be sitting on the, on the fringe of a relationship. Lord, if there's someone here who has been warded off from you because they don't feel like they look like us, Lord, um, may they this morning be invited towards you. May they, be, may they have in their mind, maybe the Lord is drawing them in so that there's someone who looks like them in our fellowship. Lord, I think this in many ways is the diversity of the kingdom from which you speak, is Christians embedded in so many places and ways in the world in which we are remaining as we are and growing in you. May may we long for the deeper things of the faith, Lord, the fruits of the Spirit, the unavoidable teachings of God, which don't have to do with office or status or rank or position or job title, whether we're in the home or out of the home, whether we have a membership of the hack or just the why. Lord, may we just shed those things as less than meaningless to you and devote our hearts to you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.